Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hey there, Gianni here live at XRWA. Well, it's probably not going to be live by the time you watch this. It might even be in the past. Uh, We were here at the convention, uh, looking at augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, all of those fun realities uh, in reality here in Perth. Uh, and this is a talk that we did live uh, called Adventures in Writing for Interactive and Games, uh, starring an, a, col- a collection of different perspectives of people who write for interactive narratives. Now, as always, every episode of Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University. Murdoch University School of Arts has supported Pixel Sift since day one. Uh, and without their help, we wouldn't have been able to make hundreds of Pixel Sift episodes. So if you're interested in getting a creative degree that combines uh, multidisciplinary skills like maybe filmmaking, maybe game design, maybe you want to be a journalist or a podcaster, or maybe you even want to have your own Twitch channel, you should check out what's available at Murdoch University in the School of Arts. So murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts is the address to go to, or you can search for Murdoch University on the internet. All right, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Gianni. I am executive producer and host of a podcast called Pixel Sift. We look at uh, people who are creative and we ask the question as why do they create and, and what drives them? And part of the reason we've got you here today, thank you for all coming down, um, is to talk about writing for an interactive medium and how that sort of compares and contrasts to other writing forms. We've got a great number of creators here for you today. Starting on my right here, I've got Alan Butler, who's a visual artist from Dublin. Anthony Sweet, who is a writer and game developer from Perth, from Black Lab Games. Christy Dina, who's a writer and designer. And we've got Glenn Sports on the end, a writer and designer and teacher, as well as Christy teaches as well. So basically, I'd like to sort of start at the beginning. Maybe, Alan, you could kind of tell us a little bit about the work that you, you do and kind of give yourself a bit of an introduction to the, to the audience. Do I have a few words? Or? Go for it. I'll wind you up. I'll play the music if you go too long. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, my name is Alan Butler. Uh, I'm from Dublin in Ireland. Um, and, you know, my job is usually, like, uh, d- defined as a, a visual artist. So, like, I'm making images and objects and moving image works for galleries and museums. Um, so, I guess, like, narratives in, in my work aren't necessarily linear or textual, but I've been working a lot on projects that examine the ontology of objects inside video game worlds. Um, so what sort of projects do you work on? Yeah, so that's a, a, a good question. So the projects I'm looking at, there's an example of it in two rooms down. It's called uh, On Exactitude in Science. Um, um, it's in the Goldsworthy room, uh, and it's the installation is composed of two screens. Um, one is... Uh, features a 1983 film called Koyana Skatsi, which is a film directed by uh, Godfrey Reggio, which points the camera at planet Earth at the end of the 20th century in late capitalism. And on the other side, I've um, entirely remade the film 86 Minutes of a shot for shot inside the video game series Grand Theft Auto. Uh, Anthony, would you be able to just tell us a little bit about what you do? Nothing's fancy as that. I just like to make spaceships blow up yeah. and uh, make people cry. No, um, I am the writer and lead designer at Black Lab Games. We are currently working on Battlestar Galactica Deadlock, which is based on the TV show from 2004. Um, and yeah, I pretty much spend most of my day either trying to make players happy through gameplay or make players cry through story. It's pretty much my deal. <laughs> Christy, how would you describe what you do? 
Oh, that's it. That's <laughs> um, gosh, um, how would I describe? Well, yeah, so I'm a writer-designer, um, director as well, but basically I'm interested in how you can write um, across media, you know, how you can basically sort of, you know, what, what happens when you're actually working on a project. So, for instance, one of my projects that I'm um, designing and writing and designing at the moment is a short animated film and a companion local cooperative game. And it's like, you know, how do you write across these um, as well? And that's one of my interests as well as interactivity and interactivity in all forms. I've got a performance background, theatre background, so live, live experiences as well as um, digital um, and app experiences there. Um, and I'm really fascinated by the, the structural design of things, um, probably less so than dialogue, um, I guess, because I, as I've moved further and further into designing my projects, I work more and more to the first person experience and to basically creating an environment in which the player is, you know, is basically, you know, taking on themselves in the world. And I often, you know, create experiences where they're able to actually talk with each other, whether it be tabletop or whether it be in VR or something like that. So I'm more interested in the structures that facilitate that. So, yeah. Thank you. And Glenn? Yeah, I'm probably a bit of an odd duck. Um, for me, I suppose when I was younger, I first wanted to do um, drawing and art, and then I wanted to do writing, then I wanted to do music, and I kind of got into games. And so games for me are just a happy convergence of different media. Um, and so that's probably why I've found it such a well, pervasive in terms of my, my life since I kind of got back into games um, as an adult. Um, in terms of, I suppose, career-wise, I ended up, because most parents always do, they say you can't make a career on things like this, so I kind of more went into the academic stream. So I found that when I was younger, a lot of my self-esteem was based in what I made. And then I think my kind of maturation was more getting self-esteem elsewhere so that I could then re-engage creativity in a slightly more healthy, balanced way. Um, I think that's probably most, most writers will find that you're kind of wrestling with your own ego when you're writing. So trying to find some equanimity where you're engaging your writing from a more objective crafting point of view rather than just throwing your head like a charged paintbrush at a canvas and that's what you're left with. So I think for me that's been a large part of my journey and games just so interesting because there's a convergence of so many things and I think there's a, a genre what's called encyclopedic fiction which is um I won't go into it but it's kind of fiction that ends up looking like an, an encyclopedia so something like uh Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow or even through back to um, Ulysses or whatever these these massive narratives that strain under the seams and I find that games are a little bit like that they're kind of like a charged poem that they're just everything's crammed into and they explode from from their inability to manage themselves. So you like what you're talking about, structure that facilitates storytelling. I find that games have so much structure in them that they can't really contain an immersive world in the same way a lot of other media. And so I think the, a lot of it falls back into the literacy of an audience that um, kind of complete the process, which is a large part of immersive storytelling, like structures that allow them to immerse themselves safely. Um, so, yeah, in terms of how that applies to me, I suppose partly from a teaching point of view and supervising projects. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a role-playing game, and that's probably been the, the longest thing that I'm interested in at the moment. Um, so more world-building at the moment is what I'm particularly interested in. Otherwise, yeah. So I think always with a, really handy to start when you do a discussion like this is kind of to define what you mean by writing for an immersive media in, in your own perspective. Maybe we'll start from, from you, Glenn. What do you think about that when you're writing for an immersive or interactive media? What do you, what do you think about and how do you define that? Uh, I suppose still part of it for me is how selfish I am as a writer. So am I actually writing for an audience or am I writing for myself? And I think in role-playing game writing communities, there is this, and even with, with players and, and kind of DMs, they just enjoy reading the books as sometimes as much as they do playing them. So I think there's this really interesting tension for me that sometimes I enjoy just writing them and consuming them um, as much as in parallel um, playing them. And so playing them is that improvisational quality where you're writing by playing the game. So RPGs here for me are a really interesting one where you're kind of taking several roles. Like sometimes you're actively, say, writing a D&D system or, or a role-playing game system. Sometimes you're doing the role, the actual world building. Other times you're just participating in someone else's world. Other times you're kind of engaging with a character. So for me, I suppose what's interesting at the moment is that when I'm playing the games, I'm often sort of drawing, which is part of the world building for my own game. And I bring characters from my own world into other people's fictions. So it's creating that... Um, 
yeah, that, that kind of cross-system, cross-world creative collaboration, which for me I think is healthy because I often growing up tended to be quite insular and I'd close myself off from other influences. So, but I found that most productive writing and creativity came when I did expose myself to other people. So, um, yeah, that's the one answer. Yeah. Mm. Christy, what do you think? How would you define interactive writing? Well, how do I do well, what does it mean well, how to do you? I define it? Oh, yeah. What does it mean to me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what it means to me is, um, you know, typically when you're, you know, uh, writing, you're taught to have a, um, a transformational arc of the character, you know, and basically, you know, define that transformation. So for me, interactive writing is designing the transformation of the player. Uh, and that's that's the switch. Um, although the audience still transforms um, via, um, you know, cause it, yeah, because there's a difference between, I guess, first-person transformation, um, but then there's a transformation via identification, uh, which you know can still take place. But I mean, I'm, I'm I'm interested in both. But that's one of my fascinations with the interactivity is how do you design that transformation of the person, um, and in, and in particular, um, consensually like not forcing change on other people. I'm not talking about persuasion or coercion or anything like that, but basically how we can basically choose. We can basically say, I am interested in processing my grief or I'm interested in understanding more about myself in this situation um, and then engaging with a creative work that facilitates um, that reflection and understanding of yourself um, from there. So that's one of my interests with interactivity. Anthony, how do you define interactive writing? Uh, Chris, uh, Christy touched on like the big one for me, which is that like writing for interactive as opposed to a lot of other mediums is that shift in the perspective, shift in the point of view. Um, and that's not to say that there, as Christy mentioned, there isn't as if there's not a transformation of the audience in other mediums. But when you're dealing with interactive, what you're writing is no longer your story, but the player's story and how they where's their agency how are you enabling their agency what's the context you're providing for their reason for interacting i think that's super important at least i i personally feel like that is super important in like coming at this from the player's perspective it doesn't matter how grandiose my plots my characters are if they're not talking to the player if they're not making the player think if the plots aren't involving the player then i'm failing my job as an interactive writer and i it's I find that even on the current work I'm doing with Battlestar Galactica, which is not branching, it's very linear, it's very prescribed, uh, it's very plotted, um, but even then, like, if I forget to just have the characters go, we need to go destroy that Cylon, Commander. If I miss that Commander for too long, players notice it. And that's, like, a really, really basic version of what I'm saying, but, like, it always comes back to how are you telling the player's story? Yeah, so um, I, I guess in terms of how I interact with video games, I'm kind of uh, trying to use them and try and find agency as a player to uh, produce artwork inside the video games. You know? So I'm kind of trying to go away from violence-driven narratives and explore uh, the worlds in that way. And for me, I think like what's important to kind of uh, realise that point and like the 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 most I guess expansive game worlds that I've seen and experienced have are ones where ontologically the player has been thought out as much or in synchronicity with every single object in the world. So in essentially like those writers have deanthropocentrized the writing process. It's not necessarily a human centered writing process. The writing, you know, what a, like a bag of potato chips is, you know, how does that look? They're not just buying, you know, a stock um, bag of potato chips, 3D model off a, 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 a website. They're kind of thinking about, well, in this world, what does this bag of potato chips look like? And um, that goes for everything to even, you know, if you think of like a game like Fallout 4 or something, it's like, what do plants look like before the apocalypse and what do they look like after the apocalypse? And those kind of might be very slight details in terms of the petals and the, um, the, the grass and, and, and things like that. And um, those, like, it, it's kind of a, a maniacal task to think about, you know, like, like, well, I don't have to write about, you know, it's not just about writing 
this person's character and not just uh, uh, we're going over to the silo commander but like what's on the way to the silo and every single thing has to be considered as that well and I presume this now involves like different like team levels of writers so to be like the story writer and then that's there's maybe a guiding principle document that secondary and tertiary writers then have to follow and say well what do choose look like in this world and all that kind of stuff so the kind of the anthropocentrized writing process is kind of a new exciting kind of it sounds like you're talking more about sort of world build the world out yeah is that, is that more am yeah, i on the right track yeah there? but it has to be written there, you mm. know it's not like you know when we were making uh, films that we would just bring a camera out into the world and we'd be able to buy a bunch of objects and this is like social realism. You're not going to necessarily put a can of branded Coca-Cola in your video game. You're going to have to come up with and write a new type of soft drink, you know? So it's it's like everything has to be rewritten now. And it's kind of, uh, I, I guess, like, a, like it's an insane task. Yeah. Well, there's a, a bit of a tension, though, between, on the one hand, there's the ambition of world-building, which is to feel like you have to bloody-mindedly go through every single detail. But there's a writer ages ago, I remember, he called Mark Angino, and he came up with a concept called the absent paradigm. So, yeah, you know the example, probably, that, you know, he talks about an example of the door irised open, and in our world, doors don't iris open. So that means that the audience then has to mentally imagine a whole world, you know, a hyper-industrial system in which doors iris open. So often if you know the ambit of the world and you just find objects that connote the world, like you often you can do the charity of allowing the audience to construct themselves and not have to feel so hostage to the, yeah, the tiresome labour because like RPGs, you know, there's so much world building. Yeah, yeah. That's quite, an, quite a good point that kind of leads back to something that you mentioned earlier where you were talking about having to build things within the rules of which players understand and you've, RPG players have a certain understanding of the world and how the mechanics of things work. But I'm curious if everyone can kind of talk about when you're writing for an interactive media, you're probably going to have people who have different perspectives or even different context about how to play or how to experience an interactive piece of, of writing. Um, I mean, a simple example is a um, the system I was working with. I first um, played with people who are just like students and they had no experience with role-playing games, and that was the best experience because they had no preconceptions. They weren't trying to play it like D&D. And then when I played it with the groups that I'd done D&D with, they were trying to play it like D&D, and they kind of sabotaged the purity of the experience so that, that I was trying to achieve. So I mean, that was kind of one example of, of that, I suppose. Yeah, the, um, the tutorial design is one of the things that you iterate the most, <laughs> you know. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like we're creating this, this world in this environment. It's about that connection for where the player is right now. And there's little, everyone's different. Um, and so the tutorial design is, is basically, you know, connecting all of those different people with this work. And you're not, of course, designing for every person on the planet. You know, that's, that's, that's not possible. But, um, but yeah, those, it, there's, the, there's the mechanics of the actual interactions, but, of course, it's setting up what they mean um, in, in the world and because there's the, the player, just, just as in any um, form of art form, is basically um, going through their mind and, and positioning a story world and constructing, you know, how, how, this, how this world, what are the rules of this world and how it operates and anticipating, you know, what will happen if you do certain things. Um, and so that part of the journey is about setting up a really clear mental model, you know, for, for the player and that's where a lot of the work happens happens um, and yeah it's not just the interactivity um, for me as well because I'm interested in works that might be transformational for people I also look at what's the um, what's their context what's the landscape you know is is this a topic in an area that is well discussed um, or is it new um, is it something that there is a lot of pushback about? Um, and all of these factors are the things that influence how you actually move them through. Are they there by choice? Do they realise what this work is about? Um, what's their genre expectations? Um, and, you know, if I'm going to be transforming that. And so those, it's, you know, it's all there in that, in, in that part, yeah. And speaking about tutorials, um, someone who's done a hell of a job of, narrative design in tutorials and not necessarily to do with anything with story 
Um, yesterday, my daughter bought Dreams, Media Molecule's new art creation tool for the PlayStation 4, um, and it's phenomenal. Like, the amount of writing and just pure, like, text-to-screen writing involved in just the tutorial, which is vi both video and interactive tutorial, um, is phenomenal because, like, they're essentially teaching an artistic language to kids as young as eight, seven years, eight years old. Um, and that's a, like, I'm really glad you brought up the concept of tutorials as part of the interactive narrative design because it is so important in setting up the context of how you introduce your players into it. Um, but like giving them that language of interaction, giving them that language of agency, what can they do inside of the world? Um, and yeah, I actually really recommend everyone check out Dreams just for their tutorials, even if you just find them online, um, because like whoever's written them has done an amazing job. Um, well, the entire team's done an amazing job of just these tutorials, setting them up in circumstances and concepts, uh, uh, sorry, in contexts, which are teaching people how to be creative and how to actually create 3D art and interactive 3D art inside of an engine and it's still having like just giving them complete understanding of over what they're doing of what their purpose and role is inside of that world it's really really cool i'll um i just um i just want to add a method that i found really helpful for designing tutorials and so i thought that might be helpful there um so um Stephen Cleary is a film de film development um, executive, uh, film develop you know film development consultant, and he's worked on like um, the Nina Simone documentary and things you know lots of feature films and and he has a, a method that he calls the hierarchy of understanding, and basically he describes it as the things that when a um, an audience is watching a film that they need to know. Um, in order for them to engage emotionally with the work. It's like I need to know where I am in space and time, who the characters are in this. Um, and obviously, you know, it's it's basically as artists you can play with this, you know, but it's, it's guidelines, you know. But it's basically thinking about the audience and what they need to to get to that point of emotional engagement because if they're still trying to figure it out, then they're not emotionally engaged. And so he has these questions that you go through in terms of the hierarchy of the things that you need to understand before you get to that emotional point. And I've adapted it for interactivity um, there and that's um, – I put it into a blog post. So, yeah, you can <laughs> search hierarchy of understanding. Christy, maybe. Christy Dana. Yeah. How, did you find that the interactive version was substantially larger? Yeah, um, the um, the thing that I found because of my litmus test is um, myself when I'm designing, um, um, working with clients and seeing if it works with them, but also um, playing lots of different things and saying, okay, does it does it work here? Does it capture everything? And the thing that I found, it wasn't necessarily the number; it was the fact that they radically change order. Which, was, which I found interesting, yeah. whereas in the film there wasn't much, you know, change in the order of them. But, with, yeah, yeah, with interactive projects I found that it did radically. It's like didn't matter as long as there and there. And one of the differences was who am I, you know, who am I in this world and what can I do, you know, and those sorts of things are really critical, yeah. I mean, talking about tutorials opens up to just the whole concept of immersion itself, which I think sort of frames what we're talking about and... I think we're trying to think of, from Janet Murray, who wrote one of the most well-known books about sort of interactive writing a while back, she sort of talks about immersion is more like experience of like descending into water. And that kind of suggests that as you're immersing, you're going through stages and that it's this kind of fragile thing you're trying to maintain to, to stave off suspension, you know, a lack of suspension of disbelief. But I think the other image of, of submersion, especially in an Aussie environment, is just running and doing a bommy into the pool, which I think <laughs> is, I think that on the one hand, immersion is subtle and fragile, and you do need a whole bunch of design principles as a writer. So, for example, you're saying you're coming up with these principles, you'd reply. And in my head, whenever you're doing any kind of design project, you'd say that, cool, you've got universal design principles, then you've got your genre or your medium-specific design principles, then your genre design principles, and sort of kind of the principles you'll talk about would sit in kind of there, then your project-specific design principles. And so as a writer or a crafter of any form, you're trying to apply design principles as part of being a good artist, but at the same time, um, games and game audiences, they're really robust. Uh, so in role-playing games, there's a guy called Gary Fine who talks about the frames that you shift between as a, as a role player. And so 
one would be that you know if you start a, a role-playing session you first rock up just as a player and you're just talking about what you've seen on TV and you're mucking about then you'll slowly kind of move into being a player so you say oh where were we at last time uh, and there's another guy who kind of extended these frames and talks about a raconteur frame and so the raconteur is oh what were we doing last week and someone else takes on the role of the storyteller of what we were doing last week and then finally you get into you know the stage where you're actually a character and talking about what your character does and so the idea is that you're kind of descending deeper into immersion but role-playing games and like computer games in general you're jumping between so many different frames that these kind of rules do get broken so you know as a player you'll kind of suddenly go up and order a pizza and then instantly jump back into the game so you kind of you're doing the bommy back into creativity so um, I find, yeah, there's this sensitivity that as a good designer, you should be applying design principles to create as coherent a world as possible. And for me, say that starts at, say, world building. So you start off thinking about a geography of the world, you know, where do mountains form, where do rivers flow. Then from that, you start thinking about the ecology, you start thinking about the physiology of species, how their needs being met. Then the sociology of how that world maintains consistency. You're trying to make sure the mechanics all marry. But ultimately, when someone plays and they jump between like a battle and then a cutscene or embedded story, they're going to have these jarring shifts, but they'll deal with it. And so for me, a metaphor would be, um, say in cinema, you had a whole bunch of rules that you're meant to follow. So like the 180 rule, which meant that if someone was filming, uh, you would always keep a conversation. You'd always keep the camera on this 180 arc, because if suddenly the camera went on this side, people's heads were swapping around. So they're saying, this is the standard of, you know, that if I'm filming a conversation, I always stay on this side. And so cinema did that for a long time. But then... There's a film called Breathless and like the French New Wave and they just said, well, why? I mean, the audience isn't stupid. They'll figure it out. So, yeah, in that film you have like a gun going off and someone falls in the other direction and it's not like anyone falls off of their chair and out of the film. They figure it out. And so game players are similarly quite robust. So, yeah, you're, you're kind of accommodating the fact that players will deal with fractures in the narrative. And that's probably one thing I'm particularly interested in and that was more from a research point of view, though, um, the fact that... Game players, and what's unique about games is that it's quite a fractured experience. Like you're alternating between like a fictional immersion and an immersion with the artifact, and often we're quite aware of what's happening with the artifact. Um, so I suppose that'd be one thing I'd be interested in what you do with like the way you structure experiences. Is that when a player is kind of kicked out of the fiction, in what ways you manage to kind of bring them back in, or how they respond to fractures in the fiction? So thinking back on other transmedia narratives that you can't plan for everything. And there might always be a moment where a character finds a flaw in your narrative design. And so, yeah, I don't know if that leads on to the kind of ways that you structure games to accommodate when they're, they've lost the structure, they've lost their immersion in the structure and how you bring them back in. Yeah, I mean, I use the principle of a, um, of a recap. Um, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, in television, you've got episodic design and you've, you, the, the design problem was what happens if they haven't seen the last episode, you know, and what do you do? And so they just, just resolve that with a recap, um, but they also change, they also um, have different episodic structures. So you've got the, I'll just quickly mention this, but the um, series structure of like self-contained begins and ends within that one work and serial is like it's continuing over across it and so the two design solutions to the problem was the recap but also a hybrid things that are continuing across to keep to keep you coming back um, but things that are also self-contained um, to so you you feel as if you've got some satisfaction with that that one thing so I use those principles in there um, but yeah I call it a, a joiner because basically it's like at the beginning you're putting in things that basically um, activate the mindset they were, they were in before and remind them of where they were um, and then you, you move into it. So, yeah. yeah how does that physically hmm. manifest? Um, well, in, well, so the most recent examples that I've been doing that was, was actually for um, installations um, that went with films. Um, so they were... Um, as, commissioned to to work with a short film festival and create all of these installations around the films. Um, and when people came out, um, if you're working with a feature film, it's like it's pretty straightforward. You know the installation is related to the feature film. If you've got a whole lot of short films, it's like how do you know 
which, it, you know, is, is with what. Um, and so with some of them, for instance, there was an animated um, a short film and there were key colours, key, um, key illustrations, um, key moments, and that was um, a huge background um, you know that was um, that was um, painted for that. So immediately it's like, oh yeah, that's that work, um, and the objects that were there, um, and and in other points it's um, props, props that were in key scenes that they suddenly recognise, um, and in other parts it can be music as well, um, yeah, all, all of those sorts of moments. I was going to say I've got two other examples. One which is we're actually doing with Battlestar. Since we've started making more story content, like we've literally just stolen what they have on the TV show, which is previously on Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. right. And then we just do a recap of like all the major story beats. And that plays at the start of a campaign before the player jumps into the new storyline. Um, and that works well enough for us because there's the, the nice little um, the niche there that we get to sit in. But the other there's the other version which I really, really appreciate. And we don't see it very often because it's quite a well to be honest I actually don't know why we don't see it all that often but for a lot of the um, lengthy narrative games what I what I've really appreciated especially in RPGs is where you get um, the development team puts in a quick story recap of the previous quest that you've just done on the loading screen and it's all just text but it's just a quick little which I think might be a Witcher 3 maybe don't don't quote me on that okay? I'm not quite certain but yeah they, they'll just give you a quick little recap of like this is what you previously were doing in your last playthrough right. and it's just like a quick little paragraph couple of paragraphs based on what you've done in the previous quest and leading you up to when you load the game straight back into where so you were back into the same game right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's nice yeah there was a um, a cross media example of that in um, Canada there was a TV series Regenesis um, and um, and they created a parallel alternate reality game that went along with the TV series and the recaps was a recap of what the players were doing yeah, cool. as well as what was happening in the series uh, which was really nice yeah, yeah. yeah one thing I wanted to ask about is, is it sounds like when you build these systems you build these rules there is scope or a position there to break those rules how do you break them while sort of respecting the player and where they come from and can you Oh, do you mean rules of design? Yeah, or even the oh, rules right. of the narrative as well. Because like, yeah. you can have quite interesting developments in a, in a story by breaking a rule of the world. Yeah. How do you, how's the best way to do that? Um, well, for me, it's a case of it's always, it's always the context. You're always designing to context. You're designing to the conditions that are there. Um, and so, um, um, and so yeah, I, I just see it as a toolkit rather than things that I have to, I have to do. Um, and as, and if, as long as you understand why that rule is there, why it was introduced, and that's one of the things that I do when I teach game design is just like I say, these mechanics were introduced at a, in a certain context for a certain reason. And as soon as you understand um, that basically why they were made and who made them, you know, you can, you can then some, have some understanding that you can actually design your own rules too. So it's a, a shift, a, a, I guess, a, a progression of the um, learn the rules to break them. It's like learn who made the rules, learn why they were made, and then, you know, feel as if you can create them yourself. Roll to move being a classic example of that, right? From board game design, like you look at board games from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and the concept of you roll a dice to see how far you can move was just, that was prevalent. That's what was the standard design concept. And these days, like, it, it just doesn't jive because like, it introduces a whole lot of variability and unfair gameplay, which doesn't work in modern board games anymore. Um, so exactly what Christy was saying, like, roll to move was a concept at a particular time in game design, which isn't applicable anymore. Because there, there, oh, there, there, there was the roll, but, you know, knuckle bones or the course, sticks yeah. or whatever, but they, they would have thought that if you did well, it's because you were divinely favoured. <laughs> interesting. I was doing a... Um, a workshop uh, on video game agency at uh, a university in London a couple of weeks ago and one of the really interesting games that came up that people were looking at was this game called The Stanley Parable which is um, a lovely game where you end up in an office and uh, everyone's disappeared in the office and you have to like walk around and find out essentially what's happened and, you know you kind of there's a, a, narrat a narrator in the game that's kind of guiding you through the place and you know, at a certain point, um, it tells you, why don't you go through the right door? And you can also kind of, you notice there's a left door, you can go through the left door. And then you think that you're kind of going around the, uh, 
like the opposite of what it wants you to do, but it always then has an answer for you, anything you do or interact with in the game. So your agency is completely predetermined. And it, it kind of, like, what's amazing about it on a few levels is that you know, a- absolutely every decision you make has already been kind of thought of first, and it kind of exposes the mechanics of these things. The, the, the storyline itself is a uh, kind of reflexively a tutorial process itself from uh, beginning to end. And you know, there's the, these kind of things that I'm, I'm finding quite interesting in terms of there's new languages that be, can become the subject themselves. You know, uh, within those. Well, I was going to ask you, it's actually quite interesting that you, you work in GTA, which obviously has a context. People know what that game is about, and then you are actually using that framework or that structure or those systems in, in order to tell a story in a different way. And, and why did you want to do that? Um, well, well, I guess like I'm, I'm, my wider artistic practice, I'm interested in how um, people's kind of, like where people's idea of simulation exists in society, in the wider context, you know, we can see it in elections and our social interactions. And I started working with video games, kind of, kind of metaphorically, you know, as these kind of you know systems were trapped in. You know, um, I wanted to see where agency was. You know, is it possible to have um, a bit like, you know, kind of the Stanley Parable itself? And see, you know, like, is it possible to have agency and is there or like artistic autonomy possible in these corporate video game simulations? Um, so it was kind of an experiment, you know, and it, it, it kind of um, oscillates between kind of accepting that, trying to pretend that the, the, the game world is a real environment and how would, what are the physical constraints I would have if I was an artist in that world, and then maybe trying to find out, well, what happens when the video game world intersects with our reality or other virtual realities like social media and things like that. So it is, it, 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 I think it becomes more interesting when, you know, like I'm, I'm adopting um, kind of pre-existing visual languages like cinema in the next room, but I've done like street photography and I use, you know, a lot of 19th century photochemical process um, uh, photography to document things in, in, in video games. Um, and it's it's when the, that immaterial virtual reality stuff collides with kind of established media. I think the, the new narratives are uh, exposed because it's the, it's a familiar visual language in, in terms of what we know, but it's also we're kind of uh, referencing you know characters or uh, cities and landscapes in these virtual worlds that are fictional, um, and I guess. I won't go into it now, but uh, there, there, are, there are branches of new kind of philosophical thought that are very much um, um, beginning to try and bring into rational thought how fictions can exist as part of our reality. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very interesting point you mentioned there, and actually to the Stanley Parable point that you were talking about as well earlier, where, where players will try to... Get, beat the game the easiest way possible and try to, how do you write around that? Stanley Parable does it in a really fascinating way. It seems to have anticipated just about every choice that anyone could possibly think of. Um, but when you're creating something, what do you do to take on board that players are going to try and Well, actually, what comes to be- mind is almost like, you know when you're playing with a child and the child sometimes doesn't really care that you're there or not. It's kind of they're just engaged and all you have to do is like shake a toy. <laughs> and there's a little bit like when the person Facebook playing it and it's like, I'm not really a player of this game, but I don't want to break their experience. So Zero's Ones is like shaking the teddy bear, <laughs> which I know it sounds condescending, but it's like that was the position I was unwittingly trying to help someone else's play that I wasn't part of or actually immersed in. And that, that was like a, a very risky moment um, where I sort of maybe said okay. But <laughs> yeah, so that relates to an early lesson for me, which is when the um, – the actors, because when you're creating immersive projects, sometimes you're using improv actors to, you know, to to perform in it, and in that way you were, and 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 they they can break it, you know, as, as you did there. And I found that one of my first alternate reality games. So these are ones that are set in the real world, um, and I I designed the narrative structure so there was just different teams. This is for the Australian Film Television and Radio School, and there were these different teams, um, and every single 
single one of the narrative strands was just an experiment was um, basically revealed evidence of a different murderer. So they were trying to find the murderer and basically I designed it so all of them had a different murderer and then put them together and see what happens. Um, but I designed it so it was pretty even um, in terms of that. But then there was an, an actor who was improving, and their improv just basically sent everyone into their direction so so that 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 equal narrative you know balancing was was gone um and that's when I realized that um um yeah how you can't have you know you need to train your actors into what are the boundaries you have the discussions about what the boundaries are but of course they need to be able to just play and do anything so you you it's basically a um, um, plot agnostic moments where it doesn't matter what they're doing. It's more of an emotive connection and other things as opposed to a, a strict uh, plot point that they're involved in. Yeah. Sort of. I suppose there's something nurturing about that, though. The issue is that you might break it in attempting to support it, but if they recognise that you're trying to support the immersion, then you're fulfilling the contract and therefore you don't have to be super precious about it as long as you're like from a designer's point of view you're trying to follow the design principles you're trying to cultivate immersion yeah but if it does break and they show that you're trying to cultivate at least that's that safe environment for it so, oh yeah but i'm just saying like create an environment where it's it's yeah. it probably won't break you know yeah. um in in that sort of thing um but yeah like play testing you know that's that's how you you know you basically put it in players hands and say what where, where are you going to take it um I'm one of the things that I love doing with playtesting now is, you know, usually with playtesting, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on playtesting there, is with playtesting is, is like you have a, um, a prototype, an intended thing, and you're interested in people's response to your work. You want them to play it the way you intended to see if, if they're actually playing it properly. <laughs> you know, you're hoping, uh, you know, yeah. But... But this is where I decided to actually lean into it. And so I also run what I just call playful play testing, where I basically say um, your goal is to um, it, um, in basically um, have the experience that you want. So if that means changing the rules and breaking things as you go, you keep doing it. And it's a lesson that I learned from Bernie Decoven, um, who has since passed, but he has an excellent book called The Well-Played Game. And in that, he talks about how when people are really immersed, they basically, that's the point where you basically go, oh, no, don't like... Don't worry, you know, about that time or limit or whatever. Take as long as you as you want because people want to stay in that state, um, and and that's 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 that key state you want. And so basically, I play test and I say, do whatever you you feel like doing, and then they come up with great design ideas. Yeah. You know, it's like oh, thank you. You know, it's it's pretty yeah. Alan, I want to know about player perspective in the works that you create. What? How is the player perspective? Are you the player in what you create, or are you is this experiences that people will be able to? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm the player, I guess. Um, like in in terms of like uh, this idea about like breaking the rules, it, it is essentially what my practice is in video games. Um, so, I guess modding games is like the ultimate way to break rules you know I'm always kind of thinking about this idea does anyone remember in probably like the late 90s there was like these emails going around telling funny stories you know chain emails and there was one about someone who rang up the Dell uh, hotline to complain that their coffee cup holder was broken <laughs> and if you talk about this the CD-ROM drive <laughs> and I, I like to use uh, games like that person who used the <laughs> um, so the way to beat the Stanley Parable, which you know you're trying to, it's always going to prove that it knows what you're about to do, that you don't have agency, even to the point that there's one moment where you can actually jump out a window and fall to your death, but then it punishes you for that and makes you wait ten minutes in nothingness and limbo land to do that. So every decision you make in that world is predetermined. So um, the way I would go into that is then, you know, take the installation folder and hack out all of the files and see what I can find in the file structure. And uh, one of the things I would do is produce um, 
cyanotypes. So cyanotypes are a 19th century photographic process um, made famous by a botanist in uh, Britain called Anna Atkins. And she was making these photographic uh, impressions of uh, algae from the British Isles about three years after photography was invented. Um, and she was doing, she kind of popularized the photographic process so much that uh, amongst um, uh, British upper middle class housewives that a few uh, species of algae went extinct. Uh, so it was like a really popular kind of uh, pastime to do. And in, in this vein, I've been exploring video game worlds. And the way to beat the Sammy Parable, I feel, is uh, there's some plants in the offices which I've hacked into the file structure of the game and I've extracted these plant textures out and I print them on large transparencies in my studio and I expose them through real sunlight in the original 19th century photochemical process to produce these images that are kind of a quasi JPEG plant, quasi um, you know sun photochemical uh, process and you know this is where you can begin to find agency within these things. So they're like, this is just like me doing something weird in my studio, but there are communities uh, which are really interesting. There's one um, uh, called the Irish Emergency Services Roleplay Community, um, <laughs> where this guy has spent tens of thousands of euros modding um, Grand Theft Auto V to have the Irish uh, police services, so all the uniforms, all of the, um, the, the different cars, the ambulance, the uh, fire services, all this kind of stuff. And it's a, on a private server every Sunday. Uh, a bunch of guys uh, meet up in this world and they just perform police duties, Irish police duties. So they're, not, they're not even like our police don't have guns, so they're pulling cars over. They modded the game so they can poke each other <laughs> and do all this stuff. But there's even like there's real police in this, and there's one guy who got into it so much over the last couple of years, he's now going to become a real police officer. <laughs> so it's almost like what, what you're talking about, this um, alternate reality uh, principles are now being you know, introduced into the video game, where, it's where people uh, can mod. And, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of thing that I think would be really exciting, I presume, for video game designers to see, well, what are the users going to do with this if they smash it open and start yeah. playing around with the world? Mm -hmm. you know, it's probably really exciting for flattering if someone did that right <laughs> yeah. yeah no it is it's really cool to see what players come up with even mm. if even if you don't go as far as modding just in terms mm. of like if you create a level and it's just a case mm. of like you present them with here's a level here's some rules here's a goal how are you going to get there and then they go ahead and just completely circumvent like 80% of your content because they find some <laughs> unique way to get through yeah. um, there's one particular mission we've got in Battlestar, um, which is a, uh, you're supposed to be saving a, uh, a particular escort ship, and I thought I had create, designed that level to be, um, it's meant to be impossible to save them, because the, the story is predicated on that escort ship being destroyed and everyone freaking out, that's the start of the long road down to uh, everyone getting killed, um, welcome to Battlestar. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and we tested that mission for hours on ends, just to make sure um, that there's no conceivable variation that you could do in your orders and your placements and all that, that this ship can be saved. And it, that's, that mission's been out available for six months now, and I just got a Discord message on Friday before I left work that one of our most intense playtesters uh, came back to me and said, hey, I saved the president. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so back to the drawing board on that one. But, yeah. It's like that tested Star Trek. Oh, the Kobayashi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to open up to the floor. Has anyone got any questions at all? And I'll bring a microphone around so we can grab it. Uh, hi, I'm Paul. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, I find narrative design, especially in digital games, really fascinating because like, you have so much more choice than especially in film. Like you can choose to have text or no text. You can have subtitles, you can have voice. Like how do you approach narrative design? How do you approach how you're going to tell your story for different? Someone else can go first. That, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, uh, it's also, it's one of those ones which have, it's kind of like a bit of a length of string question. Um, like it can change. I think a lot of it purely depends on like what is the game you're actually trying to make. So what's the genre, what's the market, what's the platform? Um, 
like you could have someone say, "I'm going to be, I'm going to make a an RPG. It's epic RPG based on um, you know, three warring kingdoms." And then the narrative design of that can drastically vary whether you're playing on a mobile or a console or PC. Um, me, I, I always come back to what are the project parameters. So we're looking at platform, genre, budget, uh, release date, how long we've actually got to make the thing. Um, and then also who are the players. Um, because again, you take that example of the RPG of Three Warring Kingdoms. That could be an action-heavy kind of RPG, almost like a, a Dynasty Warriors-style gameplay element, or it could be a more exploratory, peaceful game like uh, Yonder. Right? Um, and again, the way that I would handle the narrative design for those are very different because the player types are very different. Um, so as well as the project parameters, come back to the player types. Um, I'm very outdated that I still use my Bartle types, um, which are, for folks who aren't familiar with them, Richard Bartle was a MUD developer back in the, a multi-user dungeon developer back in the 80s, I think. Someone can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, and he came up with a very uh, uh, succinct uh, definition uh, types of players, the four player types. Um, and it's worth checking out. It, a lot of people say it's outdated now. Um, I still hold to it to my chest type because it's one of the few things I understand very well. Um, but yeah, the player types also very definitively help me decide what my narrative design is going to look like. Am I going to be designing for a lot of action type experiences, in which case we can't have a lot of exposition, we can't have a lot of character heads on screen, that kind of thing. Or are we going to be more political, dialogue focused, in which case I'm going to be spending more time on my script writing and my rewriting, you know, the, uh, going to be sourcing uh, actors, like actual casting itself is a, a massive task which goes part of the narrative design as well. Um, the level design, like all of those are purely informed by project parameters and player parameters, in my experience. Um. I guess, yeah, for me, in terms of like the choice about whether to communicate this via text or, you know, whatever, yeah, it's um, trying as as much as possible. Um, I, I know it's a, a silly thing, but it's like the old, the old adage of um, show, don't tell. Um, and it's the principle in interactivity is um, don't show, do. Um, you know, to take it that step further. And so you might start off by imagining it in terms of telling it and then you think about showing it and then you think, how can this happen just by, you know, the player doing something? Um, um, and it's just, that's, that doesn't always work. Um, but, yeah, you're, that's your – I guess that, that's your hierarchy, do, show, tell um, in that regard. And you've got hearing as well. Obviously you've got um, sound. Um, but – um, and so those, yeah, those are, are actually um, critical for me. Um, I – my mind's just gone blank. <laughs> if you don't mind jumping Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come back. that, that uh, do, don't show, like I found one game which was phenomenal that was Thomas Was Alone by yep. Mike Biddle, yep. um, which is like tells this incredibly emotional story about a bunch of jumping squares um, and you will if you haven't played it you probably don't believe me but like you get emotionally attached to these little squares these basic 2d shapes on yeah. the screen um, and a lot of that just comes from the fact that the way you're interacting between these characters is not being said out loud um, it's the way that you're actually switching between the characters and the way they're interacting how they have that only some characters can get to certain places by utilizing the abilities of another character um, it's all purely in the gameplay. It's great. Mm. I remember now. Um, yeah, my mind, mind went blank for some reason. Um, so, yeah, so one of the things is I'm always thinking about the the world the player is constructing in their head and and so what are the things that either they're doing or they're seeing or hearing or whatever which helps them um, interpret, you know, what's actually going on and what they want to do. Um, and there's really helpful information uh well you know theories related to that in terms of attention design because that's one of the things you do when you're designing you're thinking about where you're directing the player's attention um and there's top-down attention design and bottom-up attention design and so bottom-up is basically your 
reacting, you're being led. Um, there is a huge path ahead of you with a light at the end, right? It's basically saying, hey, I think I should be going that way. Um, top down is, um, you know, you're actually thinking about, I want to get to the castle, you know, something like that. And the, an example I like to cite, um, it was actually from a study where there was a conflict of this happening because a lot of designers often just think about the bottom up, just think about just think about the visuals and don't think about how this can conflict in their head. Um, it was this, there was a scene and a moment in which players had to get out of the room. Uh, they needed to to get out. There was a door. There was a fireplace. I think there was a window as well. But there was a light on the wall. <laughs> players tried the door, players tried the fireplace, players tried the window, but the designers wanted them to push on the wall and find a secret thing. And it's just like, that was, yeah, you know, they were tr trying to force a bottom up with a, you know, a top down sort of situation. And so, yeah, so it's always sort of thinking about what are the, yeah, getting that alignment. Um, with these two together um, in terms of what the player is thinking about. Yeah, that's critical. That reminds me of a, it was a Honours Hero Quest old adventure games, but it was, yeah, my cognitive process was trying to solve the problem of the lever, the rotating that I had to, it was like a mill and I had to stop. And so I was thinking, okay, to stop it, I'd need like a lever and therefore what would be a lever? I'm in a farm area, so I'll go outside, I'll look for some farmers that have hose or some sort of implement and so I was, I was running around this village looking for the tool that I thought would serve to, to stop it. Um, so, yeah, it's like top mm. down. And then they just wanted me to yeah, press the button. Yeah, <laughs> it's like exactly the same thing yeah, to yeah. stop the lever. Um, and, and that's something, the figuring out what to do is one of the, you know, it's just, that's like the, the crux of your narrative design, you know, in, the, in that case. It's like that, that doing needs to be meaningful um and and have the theme everything needs a theme embedded in it but that doing definitely and that's one of the things michael you know we were talking about this earlier you know working on vr projects and you know i get called in as a consultant and often the the question is we've got like one interaction or something like that um and it's and the interaction often has absolutely no relationship with the theme at all and so it's just a case of like you know soaking in what is this piece about what is it saying and what what is that one interaction that basically you know um that when the player is doing it over time they'll realize that that interaction is actually part of the meaning that's part of the um the realization what what about um games that don't do show or tell have just do what do you mean how can you not have show? What do you mean? There's a really interesting Irish artist called David O'Reilly who's uh, made a game called Mountain. I don't know if you've come across it. Where yeah. You're just a mountain. Yeah. And it's like a kind of zen way. Like you don't have to interact with it. Yeah, you, it's, yeah. it's more, it kind of precedes the, the do, uh, show, tell, and it just is. You know, it's about is. And he's produced a, a, a larger scale version of this um, uh, called Everything. Which is I love everything. Yeah. yeah, and he's basically everything is he built everything in the universe, and you can be a phone or a coffee cup or this room or hotel or Australia. You know, you can be like he built the entire universe up to galaxy level down to quantum sort yeah. of thing. And if you leave the game, it just plays itself, and the, the, you are the universe experiencing itself. Yeah, yeah. in a way, and it's it's maybe a, a, a type of narrative where it's it's like a non-human kind of just thing being, you know, which is a, a kind of an interesting um, maybe potential for future uh, games, I think, in terms of like where the non-human entities begin to take a bigger role in, in mm. all of these. But this is, this is where thought is also doing, you know, I mm. think, yeah. Well, I think that's pretty much all we've, we've got time for. But just before we do, uh, Christy, I know you definitely share a lot of resources, but I'm sure you're all keen to share resources and, and tips for people. Where can people find your, your work online if, if people want to find out more information? Oh, me? Oh, yeah, christydina.com. Anthony, are you? Uh, you can find my work with Black Lab Games at blacklabgames.com.au and my personal work at handwrittengames.com. Alan? Alan And Glenn? Um, I suppose Lifestyle Media is my current one, but I'm still updating stuff. So I still have uh, some older stuff on 
the wold. So if you search the wold, Glen Spores or Lost Style Media, that's some of my stuff there. Perfect. Well, we'll get a round of applause for all of our panelists here today. in the market for a super addictive puzzle game you have to check out mini motorways on apple arcade it's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases from puzzle and adventure games to sports racing and multiplayer action games everyone can count on finding something to love Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled.